Well, hey, I'm Rob, and that is Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, we are battling it out. You see, as we put our list together at the beginning of this season, Micaiah and I each placed a Beatles album in our top 50. The only issue is, which Beatles album is the best? I contend that the Beatles' best album is Revolver. For Micaiah, it is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Today, as we dive into these two albums, we're going to be joined by our guest, writer, critic, and historian, Jillian Gar, who has written extensively about the Beatles, specifically in the recent release, Sgt. Pepper's at 50. So, Micaiah, let's talk a little bit about the Beatles, arguably the greatest band of all time. Yeah, and if not the greatest, if you don't want to take that leap, I mean, it, you have to say the most influential. If you're mm-hmm. not, if you're not going to grant them the greatest, you have to say most influential. I don't think there's any way around that. So, Micaiah, for you and I, there's very little disagreement on the Beatles' inclusion right. in the list. If we're going to put any, any respected list of top 100 greatest albums together. The, the difference really comes down to among the two albums by the Beatles that have been ranked historically number ones in many lists. And the Rolling Stone list are not alone in this. There, there have been lists put, put out by uh, various numbers of magazines and, and media outlets that have attempted to rank the greatest albums of all time. And both Revolver and Sgt. Peppers have featured as the overall number one on multiple, multiple occasions. And so this isn't like comparing, for example, our Replacements episode, where we were looking at an album that is kind of generally critically regarded as their best album, and right. then one that is just, for me, a favorite. This is comparing two albums, both of which have have been and will be again listed among or as the very yeah. best album ever made. So realistically, it is just about personal preference because these are both, and we both acknowledge and recognize both of these are phenomenal albums. These are these are great, great albums. So the issue is which one is better? So let's talk a little bit about Revolver, and then let's talk a little bit about Sgt. Pepper's. In, like, music mythology, there's this idea that Robert Johnson, right, who was a decent guitar player, mediocre maybe even, and then he went to the crossroads and sold his soul to the devil, and then he came back the greatest guitar player in blues music, right? And so there's been all these kind of analogies for different uh, musicians that when they go to the crossroads, that's when everything changed. And in the 1960s, the uh, mythological equivalent of that is when other artists met Bob Dylan. So we we went into this a little bit with the band, <laughs> and the same is true with the Beatles. Um, the Beatles in 1965 meet Dylan, and the story goes that uh, he had some pot. And the Beatles, who had never smoked before, according to legend, um, joined with him. And all of a sudden, they have a new perspective on what music could be, their music in particular could be, um, what the, 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 the concept of an album for them had changed, looking at Dylan, that the, the cover could be a statement and each song could be meaningful and not just made to be a single Right. And so that's what happens with Rubber Soul. Uh, And you can hear some of that more folk influence on that record. And their uh, willingness to open up to like George plays sitar on Norwegian wood. So that's why John, I believe, retrospectively in interviews would call Rubber Soul the pot album. Other side of that, (laughs) they would call Revolver the LSD album. So this is a moment where they are going uh, even <laughs> further. So it, it opens their minds, and it really opens them up in the studio. Right? They're they're using the studio. They're using the the tape that they're uh, 
making their music with uh, as an additional instrument. Right. So, and, and at this point they're, mm-hmm. they're done with touring, right? They don't get any satisfaction out of touring, even though they made the majority of their money from performing, not record sales. So they are beginning to, to, to give that up. They're, uh, yeah, it's put a poor taste in their mouth. The crowds are overwhelming. The equipment does not exist for them to even play a show where they, the music can be heard. So they're not having fun. And Revolver's the moment where they take refuge in the studio. And it's also 1966 is the only year from 63 to 67 where they don't have two LPs released that year. I mean, you can even count the White Apple since it's a double LP. Mm-hmm. And Abbey Road and Let It Be were both recorded in 69. So it it's right. Also, in addition to that, if you count Magical Mystery Tour, and if you count the Yellow Submarine album, of the 13 albums, Revolver is right there in the middle. And that is significant because it mm-hmm. truly is the, the middle of their career. I mean, the, you still get these kind of bright pop songs, but you're also looking forward to what they're going to do later. Um, they're going to, especially with Sgt. Pepper and the White Album. You know, so it... It is a very interesting album chronologically in their discography, and just in terms of the songwriting itself. Rob, what do you? How about you uh, tell us about how the songwriting among the Beatles changes with Revolver? What makes the songwriting unique in Revolver for the first time in the Beatles' history is, like you said, they though they would tour for the last time after they left the studio to record Revolver. Um, they never played any of the songs from Evolver live on that tour. And there's something that happens for three months leading up to their time together in the studio, which hadn't happened since the Beatles formed as a band, which is they took three months off. They took a three month break for the first time in their career as the Beatles at the beginning of 1966. And so their time together in the studio recording this album is their first time coming back together after three months apart. And what you hear is a a growing sense of each of the member of the Beatles, each of the members of Beatles, John, Paul, George, and Ringo, having a clearer sense of who they are and where their songwriting strengths lie and, and really a sense of what they're drawn to. And yet it is done, the recording process and the songwriting process is still done in a very collaborative way that is allowing for the experimentation, that's allowing for the growth and in in trying new changes, but also doing it together. And you and I have had this conversation a lot that, that in many ways, Revolver does more successfully what... I think the White Album is attempting to do. The White Album is really giving each of the four artists a a whole lot of freedom to explore wherever they want to go. But because of the nature of the White Album, it almost feels like four, four unique artists that are doing a compilation album together rather than right. the sense of a single band. Revolver really is, in many ways, the the last truly Beatles album. It it is it is the last album where it feels like four individuals who have come together as one. Um, even Sgt. Pepper is going to sound much more like Paul's album than it sounds like a Beatles album. Um, and, and that will be a trend that in many ways will continue. You will, you hear the um, not growing rift because it's not, it, it, it's not full of animosity, um, but there is a growing change in the music that, that Paul is producing and creating and being attracted to in the music that John is, is writing and creating and being attracted to. And that begins to to really create not not a division on a relational level, but it does create the seeds of division on a music writing level that we really start to see the very first hints of 
in Sgt. Pepper's, that Revolver might be the last Beatles album where we truly hear four boys from Liverpool now, playing I together. I think that someone would argue against you and say that that is Abbey Road. And I think that, the, that you can make the case for Abbey Road being the last of those, especially since Ringo actually has a songwriting credit on his song for that album. Um, mm-hmm. But Abbey Road doesn't play out the way Revolver does. They, they are two entirely different albums, even though in this, with this lens, they're, they're quite similar, but in reality, they are two entirely different albums. Um, you, you get a type mm-hmm. of Beatles song in Abbey Road, uh, or maybe a couple types, but in Revolver, there, there's quite a variety among those tracks. Mm-hmm. So all of that to say, look, I, I'm, I contend Revolver is the best Beatles album. And, and I think we've really kind of covered so many of the reasons why. So, Micaiah, you are a fan, or, or, or not just a fan, you believe Sgt. Pepper's is the best Beatles album. The, my, my running theory about how people choose their favorite or what they think is the best Beatles album is typically, I think, the one they heard first. And the, their second favorite okay. is sometimes, I think, the one they heard most recently. Because I, like I, I feel like there's a lot of tops. That's fair. That's fair. And whenever I go through the discography again, I always end on Let It Be. It's almost like, maybe that's my number two. You know, I'm, I'm so high on that until I go through the discography again. Then I start with, please, please me. I'm like, no, this one needs more recognition, you know? So, yeah, I think the first one, first, everyone's first favorite is the one that, like, got them into the Beatles. And then the, maybe their second favorite is the one they probably just heard most recently. Because if you're a Beatles fan, you don't just listen to a record or a couple records. You typically go all in, right? You, you So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and for me, Sgt. Pepper was my first Beatles album. My mom gave it to me on CD. And so that was it for me. I mean, that, that, that was my in outside of like the one compilation. So that, that'll always kind of be my number one. So a little background on Sgt. Peppers. Sgt. Peppers was the album that immediately follows Revolver. It was released in May of 1967. Among the Beatles albums across the board, Sgt. Peppers achieved the most immediate critical recognition and acclaim um it it had it had cultural importance almost from the moment that it was released um it is credited by by many historians as as achieving legitimization for pop music uh as as a medium and a, gen, a genuine art form um and so one of the things that is true about Sgt. Pepper that is not true about any other Beatles album is it is truly recognized from the moment it came out as a great work, as a work of art, as a great album. Um, there are reviews you can read as early as um, June of, two th- of, of June of 1967 that that immediately placed this album as as the greatest album to have ever been made. It is generally accepted as one of the great, if not the greatest albums of all time. And it did not take years or a generation or uh, standing the test of time to be seen that way. It was really, this album was released right. to that sort of yeah, acclaim. Yeah, and you know, I mean, it was historic the moment it came out um, in that the Beatles were done touring. And so they're like, all right, here's, here is our new, mm-hmm. here's our new phase. Like we are, we're a studio band now and here are the, all the studio tricks you can handle. It's also the most expensive album cover of all time. It's so iconic now, you know, I mean, we, we, it's, it's an image so familiar, like a starry night or the Mona Lisa. I mean, it's, it's just so familiar, but at the time, it was enormous. No one has spent that amount of money on an album cover before. Uh, and no one can understand why you would do that either. The, the Beatles is not even the first thing you see in, in terms of the name. You know, it's, you, first you see that, that kick drum says Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And it, and it seems like they're really ready 
to put the Beatles behind them. You know, and when they kick mm-hmm. off with the song Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and they introduce themselves that way, you know, it feels like you're listening to a not only just a different kind of album, a different band entirely that had previously been the biggest, most recognizable band in the history of music at that time. And probably still today, honestly. There's a lot that we've said about Sgt. Pepper's, and, and I don't think I've ever in our conversations said this. And as we have spent a lot of time listening to these albums and thinking about the context of these albums, one of the things you just bring up that I have not historically given the appropriate credit to the Beatles for is that they were the world's biggest band before this album came out. And so the reality that they were, they were willing to go this far in terms of reinvention. Um, Even if, even if you don't believe Sergeant Peppers is the best Beatles album, even if you are someone who just doesn't understand the Beatles at all, you have to give credit where it is due for the courage that it took for a band like this to to defy expectations yeah. in such a now, here's another thing way. about it too the beatles up until this point were releasing an lp every six months and a single every three months since 1963 this album doesn't have a single mm-hmm. it doesn't have a number one single right it, it's it's a pretty huge beatles anomaly and and they had built their entire career on getting those singles out there and creating lps that were basically a collection of singles in a Mm -hmm. number of ways i mean just based on the name alone and the introductory song it is an anti beatles album it is them trying to shed off the beatles skin put on the colorful outfits grow mustaches right call themselves a new name Mm-hmm. Uh, experiment with new genres and different kinds of songwriting. I mean, so if someone were to say, who are the Beatles? What are the Beatles like? And you hand them this one, you're actually really misinforming that person. Because uh, it is not a yeah. great snapshot of what this band had been doing or what they did from 1963 through 1969. I mean, it, it is a really the anti-Beatles album. Sgt. Pepper is is also a concept album, and maybe the Beatles' first and only concept album in the historical sense of the yeah, term. Yeah, I mean, it was supposed to be a more clear-cut uh, concept album. You know, originally Paul and John wanted to write about life in Liverpool, and so some of those songs occur on the album, but, you know, Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields, you know, those were part of that attempt to write about life in Liverpool uh, when they were younger, uh, but it became something else. But yeah, so, so, so it's not a concept album in the way that we think of them now today, uh, where they have to have some sort of narrative structure. But yeah, there, there's, there's a thematic run that, that goes through the album, and it also is bookended, kind of, uh, with the Sgt. Pepper song and the reprise at the end. Well... You and I have have some clear picks here. Um, I am a fan of Revolver. You are a fan of Sgt. Pepper's. But I wonder what our guest is going to think. So we're going to go ahead and take a break. We're going to let you hear from today's sponsor. And when we come back, we will be joined by uh, rock journalist Jillian Gar. <laughs> Hey, it's Rob here. Micaiah and I are so excited to be starting a brand new segment to the podcast, Independent Record Store of the Week. Micaiah and I are obviously huge audiophiles, and we have spent hours in independent record stores all over America. And so today, we want to talk about one of those record stores and encourage you to support your local independent record store. Today, we are talking about one of the Pacific Northwest's great record stores, Tacoma, Washington's own High Voltage Records. High Voltage Records is a record picker's dream. They have over 40,000 LPs and CDs in stock. 
The store is incredibly well organized. If you are local to the area, we encourage you to check them out. But if you live anywhere in the United States, High Voltage Records is offering free shipping in the U.S., from their website where they have their entire inventory, both used and new, available to you. You can find them at highvoltagerecords.com. Once again, that's highvoltagerecords.com. Or you can give them a call at 253-627-4278. your way into the Beatles? What was your introduction into the Beatles? How did you first get in to arguably the greatest, if not one of the greatest bands of all time? Well, uh, I don't remember this, but I'm told that the first time I saw them was uh, when they appeared on the Ed Sullivan show in February, 1964. Uh, So I was introduced to them at the same time as most of the country was. And I was, I was just four at the time, four years old. And see, um, I had an older sibling who was 12. And people think of that as being the Beatles generation. But I think it was more people my age that they had a greater impact on because you just sort of took it all in and you're too young to really take, make qualitative judgments. Mm-hmm. So I, for years, I seriously believe that the Beatles invented rock and roll. I didn't know there was anything before them. And the only, um, I remember you never asked, do you like the new Beatles release, the new record? Because it was the Beatles, of course, you liked it. That was just just a given. (laughs) So really, it was probably not until the 70s that I became more aware of the artists before them, probably reading the Hunter Davies biography, uh, Mm. because they talk about their influences, who, of course, Elvis being one of the first. That's one reason I got into Elvis, because of the Beatles. Because I, you know, as a, I guess like a 10 year old by then, you know, Elvis was the guy who appeared on the three in the afternoon movies. (laughs) And, you know, they were not the good movies. And they always seemed to be showing the ones with Bill Bixby in them, even though he's only in two of them. And he just seemed like old and out of date. So, but then when I read that the Beatles liked Elvis, I thought, oh, well, he must have something if the Beatles liked him. So that's a whole other thing. But so, yeah, my first memory, real memory of seeing the Beatles is seeing A Hard Day's Night at the drive-in that summer, which also dates me quite a bit. (laughs) Um, I remember my parents went and uh, like this older sibling had said, my mother was really glad that my older half-sister was going to see it with a friend and their mother, because my mother thought, oh, good, we won't have to take her to see this movie. Because, you know, they thought it was just going to be another dumb rock and roll movie, as, as many of them were not that great. There's a few excellent ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, a lot of them are just kind of, they're okay. Uh, but then she came back and she said, you know, you'd really like this movie. So we all went to the movie and they all did like it. Because, of course, it has a pretty clever script. I mean, I yeah. was thinking later, even if you think about the movie Help, where... The plot of Help really has, the plot itself is really about as dumb as something in an Elvis movie when you, when you just look at the bare bones. But they made it better because the dialogue was better. The script was much better. And it had a sort of irony and self-awareness that is usually totally lacking in the Elvis movies. And of course, they also had much better songs, as Elvis himself would agree with that one. And then, I don't know how much further you want to go. Well, well I'll say- No, I love this. Keep it going. This, this will be interesting for you. You'll like this part. So then in, I got the All Together Now book, which, when did that come out? 74, 75? And so that was the first one that really laid out all the songs and the order that they were released. And that's where I really came to realize that the UK records were so much different than ours that in, in America. I don't think I'd known that before. I might have had that Tony, Ty, Tony Tyler, Rory Carr book an illustrated record i i have that one i can't remember if i got that before or after all together now but that sort of clued me in that oh these records were actually different and the way you've been listening to them is wrong and mm. so when i would get the but what, what i did was i i took all the albums and then i recorded the catalog on cassette so i basically would listen to the cassettes and i had I had all together now, right by my side, so I could record all the tracks in the order that they were 
um, released mm. as far and adhering to the UK format, not the US format. For our listeners, a lot of you may not realize, um, especially if you are um, a part of the generation that grew up <laughs> with the American Capitol Records LPs of Beatles albums, they are different in, in many cases than what originally came out in, in the UK. And I wasn't aware of this. So I grew up, my mother had um, a copy of Revolver. And so I grew up thinking that Revolver essentially was a, what turns out to be a, an 11 track album and, <laughs> and not as strong. And it wasn't until um, I bought a CD of Revolver and went, wait, where are these other songs? You know, personal preference. In Your Bird Can Sing is my favorite song on the album. And it was <laughs> never in the LP version that my mom had right. growing up. And so even as we talk about that, it's this very interesting kind of dichotomy of people who only experienced the, the American release Capitol Records versions of these albums and the people who were able to experience the UK Parlophone versions of the albums it seems to be a different experience and so it's interesting that as soon as you recognize that you you found a way to have the very british experience of those albums when rubber soul came out and brian wilson just fell in love with it and had a whole album where every track is good and that inspired him and he wanted to make an album as good as that and and made pet sounds and you think he was listening to the u.s version mm. he wasn't listening to the uk version wow so <laughs> And, you know, that had songs, the U.S. Rubber Soul had songs that were on the U.K. Help. Mm -hmm. So it had more of a folk rock feel. <laughs> you had the experience, and, 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 and again, probably not um, an uncommon experience for those in your generation, but you had the experience of falling in love with the Beatles very early on in your childhood, but then also as an adolescent or a teenager living through the breakup of the Beatles. So what was what was that experience like? I guess because I was still very young. I'd have been 10 when they broke up. I really don't remember hearing that much about the breakup, not all the details. But I knew they had broken up. And one thing I noticed is I, as we got more into the 70s, in junior high and high school, none of my friends listened to the Beatles wow. anymore. I still did. But it was kind of considered sort of passe to listen to them among people in my age group because that was something your older brothers and sisters listened to. So, oh. you know, we're listening to the new groups and we're listening to Peter Frampton. Frampton Goes Alive was a huge seller in whatever year that came out. I think it was 76. Uh, so I kind of felt on my own <laughs> mm. as, this, as this lone Beatles fan. <laughs> and uh, yeah, trying to, to get all the records so I could compile my, my tape catalog. Uh, I remember some of those songs, there's a few that aren't on albums, like From Me To You is not on an album. So I had to go and look through the singles to find it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, things began turning a bit around in 76 because of Paul's tour, his U.S. tour, which I went to at the, at the now-destroyed Kingdom. But I was thrilled because it was the first time I was in the same room as a Beatle. Mm -hmm. You know, he's probably like a quarter mile away, probably seriously, you know, how huge those, those domes are. But yeah, that was a huge event. And I think at the time that concert at the kingdom was, was one of the biggest ever given, one of the biggest rock concerts ever given. Um, and some of it appears in rock show, you know, you may know that, that it's supposed to be of that Seattle show, but most of it is not. It's from L.A. and a few New York songs. But they do have Seattle in there. You know that book, um, Eight Arms to Hold You? By, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a part where when they're talking about Paul, they go through that whole movie and they say, this song is from this city. That song is from this city. You know, they really get into the details. So that's where you can see how, how little of um, Seattle is in, actually in that movie that's supposedly <laughs> about that gig. Yeah. But, yeah, that was exciting. And I remember, you know, being excited by the thought that they might reunite because that's when all those offers started coming in. Uh, you know, 40,000, 40 million. I mean, 40 million if you'll do this concert and, and we'll raise money to feed everybody that's hungry in the world. It didn't, and, didn't Lauren Michaels try to reunite them on SNL for like a million dollars? 
to, to do oh, like not, a couple no, songs? No, not, not nearly that much. Not nearly that much. Um, and I, I was watching that too. So that, that was great. That was on Saturday Night Live. And, and that was at the time they were making all these fantastic offers. So Lauren Michaels comes on and he says, well, you know, I'm authorized by NBC to offer you $3,000. Rumors to the effect that the four of you might be getting back together. That would be great. In my book, the Beatles are the best thing that ever happened to music. It goes even deeper than that. You're not just a musical group, you're a part of us. We grew up with you. It's for this reason that I'm inviting you to come on our show. Now, we've heard and read a lot about personality and legal conflicts that might prevent you guys from reuniting. That's something which is none of my business. You guys will have to handle that. But it's also been said that no one has yet to come up with enough money to satisfy you. Well, if it's money you want, there's no problem here. The National Broadcasting Company has authorized me to offer you a certified check for $3,000. <laughs> Here it is. Can we, can we uh, get a close-up of this, Dave? Now, here it is, as you can see, verifiably, it is a check made out to you, the Beatles, for $3,000. All you have to do is sing three Beatle tunes. She loves you, yeah, 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 that's $1,000 right there. You this is the made out to the Beatles. And you can divide it any way you want. If you want to get Ringo, <laughs> Ringo less, that's up to you. <laughs> But then you probably also know, which we didn't know, none of us knew until years later, that Paul and John were actually watching that too at the Dakota. Oh, wow. Paul, it was when Paul was over and they were hanging out and watching Saturday Night Live, as everybody watched Saturday Night Live, younger people certainly, because um, it was the hot hip show. And they saw that and they thought about going down, but then they said, oh, we were just too tired. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think of the the new mixes, the new stereo mixes? I I really like the new Sgt. Pepper stereo mix a lot. It's very I, I like that there's a noticeable difference. You know what I mean? Because uh, I think that makes it very exciting. It makes it new and fresh. So I really enjoy uh, listening to that studio mix. Um, with the white album it was kind of harder to tell where some of those changes existed, except for in Long, 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 George's song. I thought what Giles Martin did with that new mix uh, was incredible. Uh, but he took out something that is in Helter Skelter toward like the end that was missing, and I, and I missed it, you know? Like it wasn't there, and I was like, oh, that's like a big part of it for me is to have that. There was a sound that I guess they didn't, Maybe they no longer had it on tape. I don't know. Because I know with with Revolver, it would be impossible to remix some of it because it's just them messing around with tape. And yeah, so, like, tomorrow never knows. They just kind of did the mixes they were recording. Yeah, yeah. And I'm Only Sleeping, I think, has some of those sounds that it, there's no way they can go back and remix it because those tapes, like, they don't exist. There's there's no way to do it. But, but the Abbey Road mix is, is great. That one... It doesn't seem like they, they really pushed themselves on that one, I, I don't think. Um, but I enjoy them. I, I only buy, I don't buy the, I'll tell you this about the, the new mixes. I don't buy the new LPs. I'll, I'll buy them on CD and I'll listen to them in the car. And that's how I experience the new mix. Because uh, when it comes time to listen to them on LP and give them a spin on the turntable, I, I want the original mix. Mm-hmm. The one I remember the most is the Sgt. Pepper one, and I thought the drums were too heavy. I kind of hmm. thought there was uh, too much space in between. Um, I get what you mean. I, sh- I should have, I always meant to memorize this quote, but Jerry Hammock, who you know writes those Beatles recording sessions books that I edited, but he did the writing. Mm-hmm. He had some great quote about it, not in his books. I think he had it on his Facebook page or something about how, when everything becomes so prominent that nothing stands out and nothing is special. And mm-hmm. yeah, he put his finger on it for me where, you know, you don't have to have the drums louder. You don't have to have all of it louder. Mm-hmm. So, but I'll have to listen. I'll have to listen to it again. But how much were the Beatles? How much were John, Paul, George and George and Ringo involved in the mixing process? Or was that solely something handled by the mixers and George Martin at best? 
Well, from what I've read was that uh, certainly in the early years, they were far more concerned with the mono mix when they were doing mono and stereo mixes. So they would often be there for the mono and they weren't there at all for the stereo, which is kind of incredible when you think about it. Um, I was just reading today, reading um, McNabb's book about the end of the Beatles or whatever it's called last year, the Beatles. And he talks about when Get Back was first released as a single and Paul hears it on the radio and he's like, oh, oh no, something's wrong with that mix. So he, it was like an advance that had been given out to DJs. So they went back in and remixed it. Now then, now that's a stereo mix. So then they did get concerned. I suppose as stereo became the dominant mix and where you wouldn't even do a mono, then they seemed to, then they obviously took more of an interest in, in the stereo mixes. Well, Hey, let's, let's go ahead and, and, and jump into it. And, 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 and Jillian, you kind of let the cat out of the bag already letting us know that revolver is your favorite. Revolver is my favorite. Um, (laughs) Well, but one of you knew it, whoever I was emailing this, because I'd said, yeah. I'm the best person for this because it's my favorite, so <laughs> I'm biased. You know, if this was voir dire in a, in a jury trial, the opposing counsel would say, no, no, we have to eliminate her because she has a bias. That, uh, <laughs> but I was told, no, it, wouldn't be, it would be fine. No, no we, it, want, we want the bias. We want we the want bias. The, yeah. <laughs> we want but, someone who has a strong opinion. But, but here's, here's what you also bring to the table. Revolver being your favorite, considering what you know and what you've discovered and what you've uh, researched and written about Sergeant Peppers, I-, I wonder if we can kind of start at Sergeant Peppers and go back. Yeah, and, sure. And, and, and so tell us, I mean, just just for you, what makes Sergeant Peppers a great album? Well, I think it's hard for younger people today to really appreciate the impact that the album had on its first release. I don't think, you know, you wouldn't, a record couldn't have that impact today, I don't think, because the music market's too fragmented and everyone's listening to their own YouTube channel, their very narrow thing. I don't think there's a song that could, that could take over. I mean, when you think about it, Sgt. Pepper didn't even have a single. There wasn't even a single that came out when that album was released. Uh, which I think I'd actually never thought about until now. So that's pretty groundbreaking in itself. Yeah, I was just talking to to Rob the other day, and I was like, there's nothing on the Beatles one from Sgt. Pepper. At at least with the White Album, you know, they released the Hey Jude single around the same time. Because they'd do that. They'd release a single and an album. But they didn't even release any other different single for Sgt. Pepper. I guess Uh, you could could consider maybe... Yeah, Penny Lane Strawberry feels like a preview. Um, but still, that was months apart. It wasn't quite simultaneous. Well, it was just, when, when you think about it as a whole, it, you know, it's this, it's this dazzling confection, uh, just starting from its cover, which you know, fascinated me as a child. You had the, these wonderful, colorful, elaborate covers. The other cover that fascinated me as a child was Janis Joplin's Cheap Thrills or actually Big Brother and the Holding Company's Cheap Thrills, because it has the R. Crumb comic book design on the front. And, you know, I was, what, nine or something. I had no idea who R. Crumb was, so that was fascinating. And the Beatles had all these, uh, you know, fun things on there. Some of the people you knew, and you saw Shirley Temple and Einstein, other people, but others you had, you had no idea who they were. It was colorful. It was a gatefold sleeve. Just the look of it was, was dazzling. And all the lyrics on the back. I don't know if that's the first album where that was ever done, but it was certainly one of the first. I mean, that wasn't common at all. Now, you know, if you get a CD, the little booklet has the lyrics a lot of times, or the album will have it on the inner sleeve now that vinyl's coming back. Uh, So there was that. And I guess just all the technical things that they did on that album. I mean, especially other musicians could realize that. And see, my God, you know, what they did with the studio. I think for musicians, it sort of opened up a door for them. Uh, like, oh, yeah, you can do this kind of thing in the studio. So then, so then they wanted to be more experimental. This woman I know who's a musician, she doesn't really like the Beatles. But one time when I was over there, she had a copy of Lewison's The Beatles Recording Sessions. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, why do you have this when you don't like the Beatles that much? And she said, it's so good in telling you how they made these records in the studio. So she liked it from that informational perspective of how they worked in the studio. And now that I know, you know, a bit more about studios and recordings, it's just, 
it's amazing when you think they did that, you know, on like these four track machines that they got the other tracks by linking more together, but still (laughs) that's amazing. And, um, without any of the devices and, and controls and filters and gizmos that they have now, but in some ways, in some ways, I think it can be good not to have all that at your hand at hand because it pushes you to be more imaginative. Mm. Certainly, I find that a lot with records from the '50s or like those Sun records that that Sam Phillips made. You know, technically they they could have been made a lot better, but they wouldn't have the same sound or feel, and we wouldn't like them as much. Uh, but but with the Beatles, they just you know they introduced all these different sounds. There was the idea that you were being welcomed into a show. There were all the kind of fun things going on in the intro. You know, they had all those sound effects. And that wasn't really common on, well, a serious record. There would be novelty records that would have little funny sound effects. What they used to call them, the flying saucer. Hmm. Uh, But that wasn't common in like a serious work. And, you know, you had the audience coming in. And that one point where the audience laughs in the beginning, and you don't know what they're laughing at. You just hear them laughing all of a sudden. No one's made a joke. Did someone do something funny on stage? You don't know. It's it's just thrown out there. What's interesting is that, you know, they think of it as a concept album. It's described as the first concept album, which which I don't think it is. But it also kind of depends on what you think of as a concept. Uh, I said I thought Revolver was a concept album. I mean, I think Pet Sounds is an obvious concept album to me. Uh, it even kind of has a narrative arc in it, or you could impose one on it easier. Uh, but Sgt. Pepper isn't really that much of one. I mean, you have the continuity of the opening song and the title song and the reprise at the end. But John himself said, the other songs in between don't have anything to do with that, but it worked because we said it worked. Well, of course, it's the Beatles. So, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I just think of it in, in terms of, well, it's a different act. You know, this is the next act. You can see it like that, just one big show. Um, mm. But then ending... But then they put that coda on. You know, you would see it as just this magical show. But then they put that that doomy coda with A Day in the Life, which I I suppose I would say per, perhaps that's the ultimate Beatles song. Yeah. It in no way ties it all together. It's not a bow on top. No. You know, it, it is a very strange moment on the record. Well, it's a very dark song. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, so thinking about about Sgt. Peppers in that way. Now let's go on to your favorite and my favorite Beatles record. <laughs> what makes Revolver great? What is it What is it that makes Revolver a great album? And, and, and let's make it personal. What makes Revolver your favorite? Um, well, that's kind of that's two questions. I was thinking about Revolver today and, and what made it great. And I was looking at it. And, you know, it's the first Beatles album where most of the songs are not love songs. Mm. And in fact, that's true for the rest of the albums, the main albums, I guess, probably Yellow Submarine too. we probably count that. But the subsequent ones, Sgt. Pepper and certain, the White Album, and um, yeah, maybe Abbey Road, you know, they're, the majority of the songs were not love songs anymore. So they're moving on to comment on other things and other concerns. I mean, look, you, you, you start out with Taxman, and then you have... Eleanor Rigby, this song about death. And then, uh, well, I guess Love, Love You Too is sort of a, a love song, but not a really straightforward one. What are the other ones that aren't? You know, you have Yellow Submarine, obviously. Tomorrow Never Knows. Dr. Robert. I mean, actually, you think about it, there's a lot of dark themes on that album. You've got death. You've got drugs. You've got mysticism with Tomorrow Never Knows, with, which, you know, was originally called The Void. Mm. which in itself is, you know, not going to this beatific heaven, but you're going into the void, which is a much scarier prospect. Uh, Well, I have this great memory of uh, being in England in 1980, and I was helping a friend paint paint her flat, and she had gone out, and her son, who was about my age, or like 20-ish, came over, and um, she had Revolver, and I was telling him, telling Alan, oh, this is such a great album. This is, you know, the Beatles' best album, which at that time was kind of a radical thing to say because no one, not many people thought that. And so we had some wine and, and we put the album on and we just listened to it. And yeah, he, he, he got into it. It has one of my favorite Beatles songs, um, 
when I when I asked to pick my favorite Beatles songs, I tend to pick um, "She Loves You" and Eleanor Rigby, which kind of show both sides of the Beatles. "She Loves You." The, this maybe goes back to the earlier point. I'd have heard that as a youngster, and it's the last song on the Beatles' second album, and they just it has such an exciting beginning with the drum the drum beats. Not a role, not the proper role, but still, you know, that just gets your heart pumping right away with that. Uh, but I was always drawn to Eleanor Rigby, even as a child, which I think is a bit odd because it's, you know, a grim and depressing song. But it has that melancholy minor key feel. And I'm always drawn to that kind of thing, the melancholy minor key sound. Box Toccata and Fugue, D minor, for example, another one there in the minor key. I love listening to that one. And... Um, the lyrics, those must be some of the best lyrics that Paul has done uh, because they're just descriptive enough. And it's, you know, the last verse is sad, but it's not like rubbed in and, and obvious. It's just, uh, just the words, nobody came. Mm-hmm. Buried along with her name, nobody came. And that was it. And it, it, it's just so beautiful and stark. Mm. And all the songs just seem to lead one to the other to the other. There's, uh, even though, I don't know, on side two, maybe the, I mean, I might say, and and your bird can sing is maybe somewhat of a, I'd say that's a lesser song, uh, but the harmonies are sort of redeemed by that. Mm -hmm. It's sort of redeemed by that. Um, The production is great. All the, the songs are strong and, and, they the Beatles personalities all come through very strongly in them you know you have Paul being so romantic and and George George is so dark some of his songs what uh love you too I'll make love to you if you want me to I mean that's a great offer isn't it (laughs) Uh, and then you have Ringo being all friendly and oh let's go in our yellow submarine and and George's uh John's cynicism and world weariness Mm. Mm -hmm. and all the different styles of music too you know you had the orchestral thing in eleanor rigby and um the nice thick rock harmonies and the the ballady type stuff with here there and everywhere and uh for no one sad one and then you know the bit of motown soul that he got in the horns with got to get you into my life and then it'd be interesting have to look back to see what must people have thought hearing Tomorrow Never Knows for the first time mm. in 66. There really wasn't anything like that on, uh, on a record by a group that was so popular, you know? A mainstream yeah. group, that's a term I'm looking for. There was not a track like that that any mainstream group had put out. Yeah, and it, and it even predates, you know, it's the same year as Freak Out by... You know, mm-hmm. uh, Mother's Zappa. Invention. Yeah, and Zappa. And it's just before Velvet Underground. So, I mean, it is probably about the weirdest thing anyone heard <laughs> on a record. Yeah, yeah. Certainly a mainstream record that went into, you know, that sold in the millions. And even She Said, She Said, um, which is, I mean, an incredible, talk about love songs, it sounds like one. It could be, but but, this but she says, "I know what it's like to be dead. I know <laughs> what it is to be sad." And then you know, and she and you know, the girl, the woman's telling you know, John, "Oh, you don't you don't even understand what I'm saying." And John's like, "No, I do understand." <laughs> you know, this is a different take on the Beatles. You know, what I mean, it is so. Even though it sounds like it could be one of Paul's kind of big pop numbers, it it, it is not. Even though it has some of the the most fun kind of vocal. Uh, melodies and performances there it's such a different thing from anything that uh you listen to and and lately i've been listening to them chronologically Mm -hmm. so i've been having this like big impact of like whoa you know you you really do feel like this is in a different arena now you know but but yeah i i i understand the case for revolver um you know and looking at it you know it to me, also, I've always kind of decided that, well, Revolver is, you know, they do everything with the white album that Revolver has, but twofold. You know, in Paul's, uh, not his autobiography, a sort of, you know, memoir that he did with Barry Miles many years from now, he talks about, as he's growing up and thinking, well, I want to be an artist and just watching and observing people 
this is when he's a student, he's not even in the Beatles yet. And just, you know, he'd, he'd watch people on the street or he'd be on the bus and observe other people and already thinking ahead, well, this might be good for a play or something, you know, that sort of observational side to him. And I think, I think that comes to full flower in something like Eleanor Rigby, which is, you know, so observational. It's a series of little portraits of these two people and then just expanding it to a wider concept of loneliness which you know resonated in the modern age perhaps and um with john i think you just uh you get his unique take on things i mean i guess the the two well i'm only sleeping you know he he takes his own he takes his own personal experiences the and but then he twists them into just something very strange and surreal. Like, you know, in I'm only sleeping. You can say, Oh, it's a song about insomnia, but you know, it's a, it's not a straightforward song at all. It's just this weird sort of loopy dreaminess type of thing. And she said, she said, based on a conversation with Peter Fonda, when they're taking acid and Peter's saying, I know what it's like to be dead. Cause he died on the operating table when he was, when he was younger and just, but instead of putting it kind of straightforwardly like that, you know, he makes it a woman. So, and you don't, even that relationship is ambiguous. Is it, you know, a girlfriend, just a random woman on these talking to on the bus or, you know, there's even that kind of strangeness about it. He makes it kind of strange or even tomorrow never knows, which if you think of the broadest terms about religion and looking for salvation uh, and people want to be redeemed and, and this song just sort of takes that to the nth degree. <laughs> you know, again, he's sort of twisting things. And, and that was what he did. Um, and Ringo, of course, he's just lovable Ringo. And he comes up with the quintessential Ringo song. Uh, I remember one of the first or second or so times I saw him with the All-Stars. And they have the sing-along to Yellow Submarine at the end. And he was going, even fetuses know this song. <laughs> <laughs> It's like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, you know? Yeah, yeah, You, you, yeah. you come out knowing it. <laughs> and George, um, I don't know if it was the, the best. His songs, his songs are, are very interesting. I mean, he doesn't, he, he doesn't really do straightforward love songs, does he? Uh, even, in, even in something, years later, I always thought about that. In the middle section, he goes, you're asking me, will my love grow? I don't know. I don't know. And I thought that's an odd thing to hear in, in a love song that people think is such a beautiful love song. But he always has that doubt and that and that reserve in it. Uh, but but of course, with um, Love You Too, you have all the Eastern sounds brought in in a different way to Sergeant Pepper within you without you, which actually we didn't mention that, but it was it was really kind of revolutionary the way they integrated Western and Indian instruments in that song. And you had the Western musicians trying to sort of play in an Indian style with the sliding and the gliding that they don't normally do. And it's just that backing is, is pretty remarkable. There's some wild time signatures uh, happening in that track as well that are very hard to keep up with because they, they change often. And also... Hell of a way to start side two. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that you want to make a statement, you know, it, that, that, it, that's a wild way. To, I mean, coming off of Mr. Kite, ending side one, and then turning over and getting that, that's a, I mean, that's the middle of the album. That, that is wacky. This friend of mine that had a, a fanzine on, on tapes, we'd call it mixtapes now, but we didn't, I think it was called Tapeworm. That the name of it and we compiled like an all-time top 100 of albums and people would write in and vote for them and um three of my top 10 that i remember that would still be in my top 10 were revolver and nevermind and kate bush's the dreaming oh uh, i think revolver revolver would be up there certainly. you know while while we have you I want to confess something to you. <laughs> it's so hard. For, I was born in 1990. So with Nevermind having come out in 91, I don't have really any connection to it. Yeah. And I really struggle with grunge in general. 
Well, they were all huge Beatles fans. I don't know if you knew that. I mean, I can, I can always assume. But you always hear of Nirvana's like, oh, yeah, they were really into Lead Belly, you know? Yeah, that, yeah. That you was, always hear kind of that side of it. I'd say that was more Kurt, but like um, the first Rolling Stone interview they did, which was not when they were on the cover, it was before then. It was when the album was doing really well. So Rolling Stone interviews them. And one of them says, yeah, it all, they're talking about influences. And they said, it all starts with, with the B word. And they meant Beatles. <laughs> So they, you know, they each, they each said how much they love the Beatles. And I mean, if you listen to the Bleach album, um, which is, you know, a lot heavier and gnarlier, but listen to About a Girl and you know how big a fan of the Beatles Kurt Cobain is, because hmm. that, that's just, again, it's kind of a darker, a, a, a few darker lyrics in there, but you know, it, it's a pretty pop song basically. And um, I know Chris, so much, and I've, I've hung out with him a bit. And one of the fun things was one time I saw him and he and his girlfriend had gone to Vegas and they'd seen the Beatles love show. And we were both just talking about it so excitedly and how, yeah, you hear the drum beat from this and went into the guitar riff from that. I mean, he knew all that stuff to be able to pinpoint, he knew what songs they were from. So he, he was just really into it and, and really excited about it. And I realized, I think growing up listening to musicals and in musicals in particular, the lyrics are very important in the songs because they're advancing the story, perhaps. So I think that's how I really got interested in, in, in words. Um, so, yeah, I think that probably can relate to some of Paul's things. But although John also, the way he looked at lyrics was interesting. He said, I have to make them mean something, whereas Paul was more maybe about crafting little stories like Rocky Raccoon, you know, John would never write a song like Rocky Raccoon. And I think he was even kind of disparaging about it, but that's just not the kind of thing he wrote. What do you say? I wrote, a, I write about me because I know me, which uh, that's what he did. But yeah, I think listening to musicals was what got me interested in words and, and writing. I'm glad that you've opened us up to the idea of including, because we, we have some like movie soundtracks on our, on our list that we've nominated as some of the best albums of all time, or at least we will. I don't know if we did on this last one, but like, but things like Superfly, right? But not thinking of, I like that you've now opened me up to the idea of including like a cast recording of a, of a, of a Broadway show and opening up the, the idea of what makes a great album and not those being were, so. Those were huge records at the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, soundtracks uh, and original cast albums. I think, you know, it's my, maybe it's particularly interesting in the case of original cast albums because for most people buying them, that's the only experience of the show they'd get. They weren't going to Broadway to see the show. They weren't going to be able to do that. Right. Oh, man, how do we, how do we bring this back? <laughs> uh, Beatles, I mean, my, well, uh, here's the other thing with Sgt. Pepper 2. My fiance, she's musical theater, all right? She, she did musical theater. She grew up. Um, go, uh, going to shows whenever she could, uh, regional theater, you know, a lot of that. And so she responds to Sgt. Pepper. Mm-hmm. And it makes perfect sense that she very quickly, after hearing When I'm 64, turned into a soft shoe routine for her kids that she was, you know, at her dance studio. Uh, but yeah, it is... Now, now we've had you for almost two hours, so we do need to start. Uh, You've got to edit all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that's Rob's job. I do not envy him. Uh, I just got to find a way to take this, you know, the rain sounds out, or we can just leave men and make it a, a a weird take on tomorrow never knows, and I'll I'll include yep. some tape tape wobble in there as well. Um, but, but Jillian, um, you've been unbelievably generous with your time and we can't thank you. We can't thank you enough. And, uh, we thank you so much for your writing and for your, your fellow music nerd love that (laughs) allows guys like us to, um, to feel like we are not alone in the world. And so, so much of, of what we've talked about tonight in terms of the Beatles, um, you have, you have done for us that, that you have helped us know that we're, we're not the only people who feel that way about the music we love. And so we're so glad to get to talk to you and thank you so much for being with us tonight. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me here.
Wow, we want to thank our guest, Jillian Gar so much for being with us. And I want to apologize to our listeners. Uh, if you noticed uh, a whole bunch of noise towards the latter part of that interview, uh, we were recording that the other night while Florida or the area of Florida I live in at the time was under tornado warning and we had massive thunderstorms coming through. And so uh, we do want to apologize if that impacted the audio at all. I guess this is karma, Micaiah. I guess this is me getting even with you from our replacements episode where Bob Mayer sided with you that Let It Be is the best replacements album because Jillian Gar has sided with me that Revolver is the best Beatles album. And we would normally take this second to decide whether or not this album was worthy of being in our first 25 for the season. But this is kind of a no-brainer. This is kind of an obvious choice Yes, we knew we were going to have a Beatles album make our list in the first season. I'm so grateful that it's Revolver. Um, but the truth is, I would have been just as happy with Sgt. Pepper's. Um, like you said, there's probably three or four Beatles albums that you could put as the inclusion for this first season list. And I would have thought that would have been fair. And so here we are. Revolver is in our list for our first season, our first 25 greatest albums of all time, the Beatles revolver. And so since that's kind of a foregone conclusion, why don't we go ahead and instead focus on potentially a more controversial question as we close. Micaiah, what are your top five songs from okay. revolver? This is easy for me uh, because the person who okay. I think shines the most on revolver is John. And so for me, John's mm -hmm. songs are what really does it for me. So my top five, as they occur on the album, uh, I'm Only Sleeping, She Said, She Said, And Your Bird Can Sing, and uh, Tomorrow Never Knows, which I always think is a James... I always think I'm going to say like a James Bond title on accident whenever I have to say it out loud. Uh, but that's only four, because <sighs> here's my fifth pick. Mm -hmm. Rain. I'm saying it. Revolver <laughs> would be a better album if you included Rain, which was just a B-side to the Paperback Rider single, uh, which were two songs that were recorded during the Revolver sessions. You get those two on there. I think you have a better album, but specifically Rain. I think that is, I mean, that's one of my top 10, maybe top five Beatles songs ever. And that it's not on an LP or and that it's not on like a singles compilation uh, is a real bummer because, I mean, it, it is a great track where John is phenomenal and Ringo. Uh, so, some of Ringo's best stuff is on that record as well. Okay. So my five, top five from Revolver are going to be number one in which which might low-key be my favorite Beatles song across the board is the John Lennon song, And Your Bird Can Sing. Um, my, my favorite album, my favorite song on my favorite Beatles album, and it was hard to discover because, again, this is one of yes. the three tracks that were removed for the U.S. pressing. So, And Your Bird Can Sing would be my number one. Eleanor Rigby would be my number two. Uh, my number three would be She Said, She Said. Number four would be Got to Get You Into My Life. And number five oh, wow. would be For No One. So I, I believe that Tomorrow Never Knows is an incredibly influential song. On and that we song can do alone? a whole other episode about what, what, what became effectively the techno music genre. Um, I believe owes much of its origin to this one particular John Lennon song. Uh, Tomorrow Never Knows uh, really became the starting point for what we know today as electronica music. Uh, it was really that first song where loops and warbles and, and messing with tape functions. And it is, it is really a, 
a song that is a creation of a studio in a way that bands and artists were not doing at the time. Uh, With the exception maybe of Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys, uh, no one was doing in the studio what the Beatles start doing in the studio with Revolver. And and if not techno and electronic music, certainly uh, the British music that comes at the end of the 80s and early 90s with the Blue Mondays and Stone Roses who start using those like electronic Mm -hmm. elements. Uh, And maybe Oasis to an extent, but I mean, they just sound so much like John anyway. Uh, So yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, so there you have it. Uh, Makai and I's top five from revolver. And we know listener that you've got good taste. And so we know that regardless of whether or not you would place Revolver as the best Beatles album, that you're going to be okay with Revolver being in our list. But that may be a big assumption on my part. Maybe you're someone who doesn't understand the Beatles at all. Maybe you're a person who feels like this is a band full of white men that has gotten far too much appreciation and recognition for music that they didn't really create in some ways. And so if that's you, we want to hear from you. If you've got a different favorite Beatles album, we want to hear from you. So reach out to us on Twitter at You Forgot One Pod, on Instagram at You Forgot One, or you can reach out to us on our website, youforgotone.com, and leave us a comment on this episode's post and let us know what your take is. And if you're on Anchor, you can, of course, can go to anchor.fm slash youforgotone, and you can leave us a voice memo to potentially be included in a future episode. Uh, and you'll hear us again next week when we discuss uh, a Florida, a Floridian favorite, uh, Wildflowers by Tom Petty. 